Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I have about 10 minutes of commentary on oil and gas, which is... uh, I think useful, but it's early days. Um, the oil market's been very strong, and uh, and the gas market has been strong, and the LNG market has been really strong. LNG uh, in Europe uh, is around twenty-five or six dollars per MCF, and uh, in in Japan, Korea, the Jam- JKM, the J- Japan Korea marker. Platts reports is like 27, 28. Uh, if you just did a BTU conversion, let's say, let's just round up to 30, six times 30, because six MCF equals one barrel, that'd be $150 per barrel of oil. So some of the headlines you've seen in articles in the Wall Street Journal says that one of the reasons oil's been strong is LNG, spot LNG is so high. There's some substitution where people are burning oil to make power rather than uh, LNG. Um, one of the interesting things about oil, gas, LNG that that affects the way people view stocks that of uh, companies that produce oil, gas, uh, and LNG is backwardation. And I know I've talked about backwardation, but just for anyone who's not familiar with the term, uh, it means that the futures price, say the price halfway between 22 and 23, uh, so say uh, a year and a half out, or let's, let's say two and a half years out, let's say two and a half years out, so halfway between 23 and 24 is uh, heavily backwardated. That means that if you sell your oil for delivery two and a half years from now, you only get 60, where you get 70 based on the current month. Alternatively, for gas, you get $5 or five and a half or whatnot based on the current month, and you get like $3 and change out two and a half years from now. LNG is even more remarkable. It's 27, 28 now, and out two and a half years is like 10. Now, um, what if, if you think about most commodities or commodities, if you're, uh, if you need to use oil two and a half years from now, it ought to be in contango. Contango means that the two and a half year price would be higher than the current price. And the reason that should be the natural uh, state of affairs is that you can get the oil delivered two and a half years from now and you don't have to store it or if you Use working capital to put oil in inventory. You don't have to pay interest on the money you borrowed for, uh, for working capital. Why does backwardation persist? It persists because the producer, the oil producer, or the natural gas producer, or the person who's producing uh, liquid natural gas, LNG, is concerned that the current price won't be maintained. So they sell the futures price. So they, they sell a price for barrel of oil they can produce two and a half years from now for 60. 
uh, or MTF of gas for, uh, for, uh, $3 or a, uh, MCF of LNG for $10. Um, I think the amount of backwardation will be reduced. I don't know whether that's going to be from the current price coming down or the two and a half year price or the futures price coming up. Reason I think that's going to happen is that the management of oil companies, gas companies, and not just U.S. oil and gas companies, worldwide oil and gas companies, are going to be reluctant to hedge. Why is that? Well, uh, under generally accounted, generally accepted kind principles, they have to they have to uh, recognize the hedge loss, even though it's a non-cash loss at the end of every quarter. So when you see financial statements for oil and gas producers, as of September 30, the non-cash hedge losses are going to be huge. doesn't really mean anything. What they're doing is they're marking your hedge contract to market. I'm not even sure that's good accounting. But <clears throat> the, other, the other thing that's happened is because the, uh, uh, people don't want to lend money to oil and gas companies and they don't want to do equity financing or buy equity, they are uh, they, they are uh, um, um, uh, having to live on cash flow. You're living on cash flow, uh, you get your debt down in addition to paying dividends, and your rationale for selling oil and gas forward uh, is reduced because you don't have to protect the balance sheet. If you're if you're committed to the idea that you can spend just 70% of the cash flow and still get production growth, which is, you know, very, very high performance. Uh, everyone wishes they could do that or is going to try to do that. Uh, then you're, you don't feel like you need to hedge in order to protect your capital budget. So I think there'll be less hedging, less forward sales. The people who are forward purchasers are people who want to make sure that the price of oil gas for their operations doesn't skyrocket. So that would be uh, a trucker or uh, or uh, or construction business or a mining business that uses a lot of diesel, uses a lot of oil. Uh, that particular demand for forward purchases is, is kind of a constant, I think. Uh, people just work it into their forward planning. It's, it's, it gets overwhelmed by the amount of forward sales that oil and gas producers want to make. So that backwardation, which is illogical because theoretically you should pay more for a barrel of oil two and a half years from now. You don't have to store it. You don't have to pay interest on the working capital, but you almost always are in backwardation because of this hedging. To the extent there's less forward sales, there'll be less backwardation. I don't think it'll carry so far that there'll be contango, but less backwardation means that when someone evaluates Pioneer or Diamondback or the gas companies, uh, EQT and, and Intero and whatnot, uh, they will use better pricing for 23, 24 if there's less backwardation, as people generally use a strip, and that will translate into somewhat higher valuation for the stocks. Uh, so I, I'm pretty sure this is what's going to happen. We have these 
calls 52 weeks a year, I'll certainly, as it starts to happen, call attention to it. But I think it's a phenomenon that, that, you know, is worth from a capital markets point of view, from a stock market valuation point of view, is a phenomenon to, uh, 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 keep or a trend to a projected trend to keep track of. The only other thing I want to get into before, uh, uh, turning over most of the remainder of our 30 minutes to Mike is, uh, interest rates. Uh, the long bond, the 10 year bond has got, you know, gone up 20 basis points. Uh, the, uh, I think it's pretty clear now the Federal Reserve program to purchase, uh, $120 billion of securities a month is going to be high fat. The question is just what the timing is. Uh, and, uh, uh, I, I have a theory which I wouldn't invest in personally. I certainly hope no one else does, but when if, if we try to anticipate looking back five years from now and, and try to interpret what in the world happened, I think that the response to COVID from the world central banks, not just our Federal Reserve, was to flood the market with liquidity. And the way you do that, so that so they they the interest rate on short term securities here discount rate, your Fed funds rate, they could manage. And they got that down to almost zero. The way they added liquidity was to have the central banks buy government securities. And in our case, $120 billion a month is $80 billion of government securities and $40 billion of mortgage bonds. By pumping up the Fed's balance sheet, you added liquidity to the market. Uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, the Fed's balance sheet went from just around four billion to like eight and a half, excuse me, four trillion up to eight and a half trillion. That will be withdrawn. It's possible that that we've had significant asset inflation, which would include the stock market, would include real estate. Uh, uh, it also would include government bonds. In other words, if 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 the if if there should be some real interest rate, in other words, if, if the 10-year bond has gotten back to 155 and <clears throat> the rate of inflation is running 2.5, which seems like it might be more than 2.5, but let's say 2.5, and, and the 10-year bond is 150, that's 1% of negative interest rate. In other words, interest rate after inflation. In In a normal situation, that should be one point or one and a half points. So if you had one point of real yield or what, let's say one and a half points of real yield and two and a half points of inflation, uh, that would put the, uh, uh, the 10 year interest rate at, at 4% of 400 basis points as compared to one and a half percent. It may be that if we hadn't had all this liquidity added or if we started to phase it out sooner, we'd be closer to that. And a question is, how would equity valuations respond to that? And my answer is, if you focus on businesses that generate more cash than they use, that pay a dividend, that they can increase the dividend every year, you'll be fine. Uh, but um, you, you might have a downdraft over time 
of 20 or 30 percent of your position. I mean, your position will be fine. In 10 years' time, you'll, you'll be very happy with the position. But as the world central banks phase down this bond buying and get their balance sheets reduced, uh, this could be an impact. Does it mean that you have a position that, say, you're up three or four times, you sell it, you pay tax, you have to take the after-tax proceeds and try to reinvest them? No, I don't think so. But but it's just something to be aware of in terms of a 10-year or multi-decade plan to try to create some significant amount of net worth. Uh, that, you know, 20%, 30% drawdowns because all of a sudden uh, the capital markets are dealing with greatly reduced liquidity, which would happen on a worldwide basis. It would not only be our Federal Reserve, but it would be the European Central Bank, the Chinese Central Bank, the the Japanese central bank. Uh, and uh, it's not something to be afraid of. It's just something to be aware of, I think. And with that, uh, Mike uh, uh, is uh, wants to speak about software as a service and uh, the impact of interest rates on the, or the impact of, you know, a, a, a less liquidity in the capital markets on software as a service. So over to you, Mike. Hi, Hunt. Thank you. I, so, so yeah, so, so software as a service companies uh, tend to trade, as we've discussed in the past, on a uh, multiple of um, like the enterprise value of the company tends to trade on a multiple of their next 12 months revenues. Um, historically, that multiple prior to 2020 is Kind of, if you look at the whole population of these software as a service companies, that historical number has been under 10. Um, it's currently around 15. And then, if you were to break it up by the, you know, the top, the the most expensive on a next 12 month revenue multiple basis, those ones are that current number is about 57 for the top five. Um, so the Essentially, all that means is the higher that next 12-month revenue multiple is, the more the valuation of the company is uh, is dependent on future cash flows. And the more the valuation of the company is dependent on future cash flows, the more the, the discount factor um, is um, determinant of the actual valuation. So the farther out those cash flows are, um, the the more we have to discount them as that 10 year rate increases. Um, I'll, I'll pause there. I think that probably covers that part of it, right? Hunt? Well, yeah, I mean, 15 times to 10 times, even though you have a, you know, a, a, a revenue base growing at, you know, 15, 20% a year uh, would be something like a 30% drawdown. If you're in one of these companies and, and you, You've gotten comfortable with their uh, their uh, service and and their competitive position and uh, the trend to more use of the of the uh, service by uh, by uh, by their you know uh, I, whether they're personal users or commercial users or whatnot. Should you exit that position? Anticipating a thirty percent drawdown? Hell no! I mean, you 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 don't know, but you have to be you 
you know, in holding an investment or making investment, you have to understand that you could have that kind of a drawdown. My particular issue with these companies is, and, and a great deal of money has been made in them, and they may be, uh, you know, absolutely the, the place to, uh, to have. If you own 10 stocks, you may, it may be a strong enough area. So one or two of them should be, uh, stocks in this, in this, uh, uh, you know, in this, in this, uh, this, the, having these characteristics. My main concern is that you relate to them times revenue rather than times cash flow because uh, they they spend a great deal of money on marketing. In other words, if they if you had a business with two hundred million dollars of revenues and uh, uh, and it might have I don't know I'm going to pick numbers out of the air that that Michael correct say seventy million dollars of of marketing. Well, what is marketing? Marketing is having a sales force and a and an effort to get more people to sign up. Uh, uh, sometimes you have to get more people to sign up because people uh, will will try the, the software and then for whatever reason stop using it. So you 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 have a net loss. So you've got to make up the net loss and then you have to increase by having other customers. So it's a sales force out there. Uh, more than I think, more than advertising. It may there may be some promotional where you offer, you know, use of uh, the uh, software at a you know at a discount for the first year or something like that. Um, I prefer, and of course I don't find. I would prefer a business where I don't mind the marketing effort. I understand that, but where there was free cash flow after the marketing effort. Uh, uh, but that. That 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 finding finding maybe maybe you could find software businesses that were like that five years ago or ten years ago. Now you can't. And I think what Mike will explain is that if you follow Hunt's strategy of you know okay, be able to outrun the marketing so that you do have free cash flow uh, uh, rather than chewing it all up and marketing to maintain a twenty thirty percent revenue growth. Uh, Michael say that's fine. I understand what Hunt's saying, but you may miss the one that really is doing the best because when you have an, an opening or you start to get acceptance of your product, you want to build out as quickly as you can before someone else catches on. And uh, uh, and with that, I'll turn it turn it back to Mike. I'm I. It's, in, in, in looking at these kinds of companies, you gotta you gotta follow Mike's lead, not mine. I, mean, I think the problem with my lead is I look at them all, but I never find one to buy. But with that, we'll turn it over to Mike. Well, you may not know it, but that's a perfect tee up for today because we're going to talk about two SaaS companies um, in the cybersecurity space. One of them is uh, does generate free cash flow. Um, and the other one is younger, newer, and does not yet. Um, <clears throat> so, so with that, why don't I start talking about these companies? I'll give a, a brief overview. We'll talk about cybersecurity. Obviously, we've, we've covered some of the big cybersecurity events on this call in previous, uh, previous calls, like the SolarWinds attack, for example. Um, so let's talk about these two companies um, 
there. Uh, so two weeks ago, we discussed digital transformation and the digitization of work, specifically covering uh, two companies that have benefited and are enabling further adoption of digital workflow management, Asana and Monday.com. With digital transformation changing everything, especially accelerated by COVID-19, organizations are becoming increasingly susceptible to cyber attacks because, frankly, more, more things are online than ever happened before. And this is sort of a continuing mega trend that we've seen. Uh, everywhere data resides is vulnerable from the device that you're operating on, whether it's a laptop or a cell phone, to servers in the cloud. Uh, all industries, institutions, governments, et cetera, ex are exposed and susceptible to cyber attacks. Um, and, and really, this is, is shown the fragility of some of these digital systems. And maybe we'll see some changes in the way some of this is structured in, in the future. But for now, cybersecurity is sort of a whack-a-mole process. It's, we've come up with new ways to protect. And then there are well-funded, professional, militarized organizations that are trying to figure out how to break down those defenses. Um, so cybersecurity is already important. It is only going to become more important, and the developments in that space uh, are important to, to at least keep tabs on. If it's not necessarily something you would need to invest in, it is something to be aware of. Uh, historically, cybersecurity outcomes were uh, the, the best case scenario was defined by something called the 1-10-60 rule, meaning if you could detect an attack inside one minute, investigate it within 10 minutes and respond within 60 minutes, that was thought of as good as it gets. Um, that's no longer good enough anymore. Uh, one of the interesting things I pulled from, from one of these companies, uh, um, SEC filings is, is that the average uh, cyber attack, they goes 263 days without being detected meaning these attacks are typically done, they get in, and they, they don't do anything, meaning part of the, the attacker's intrusion method is just to get their feet foot in the door a bunch of places and then coordinate a more uh, professionalized attack. So both of the companies we'll look at today provide cutting-edge solutions that are capable of preventing attacks uh, like the one that affected SolarWinds. In fact, both companies claim that their clients were not affected by the SolarWinds hack. Uh, both of these companies use artificial intelligence technologies to protect against cyber attacks, and both use uh, SaaS-based subscription fees um, based on the number of endpoints in a given network. So the two companies are Sentinel-1, which is recently IPO'd, I think earlier this year, and the other one's called CrowdStrike, which went public maybe uh, 2019, if I remember right. So... Since we only have five minutes left here, let's just go over the valuation because you're going to see two very different uh, valuations for these companies. And that's because of the difference in how fast they're growing. So Sentinel One is a much smaller company. Uh, they are expected to double their revenue to $243 million over the next 12 months. The current enterprise value is $13 billion, meaning that the multiple of next 12 months revenue is 536 CrowdStrike, on the other hand, is expected to grow by 47% next year. Nothing to shake a stick at. Um, the, the revenue in that case would be $1.67 billion. 
With an enterprise value of 54 billion, CrowdStrike currently trades at a 32x next 12 months revenue multiple. Again, revenue growth rate is the single best explainer of valuation for these types of companies. If you were to do a regression, it uh, represents about 60% of the variation in valuation, but there are other factors that, that drive the value. Um, quickly, I'll, I'll cover a couple of those. So we have a way to compare, again, to compare the two. One of those is gross, gross margin. So the higher the gross margin, the more likely the company is going to generate more free cash flow in the future. And therefore, a higher gross margin is thought of as better than a lower gross margin. So uh, in the case of Sentinel-1, their gross margin is currently around 58%. The CrowdStrike gross margin is higher at 73%, which is closer to the average, which is, I think the average is around 72. So for a typical SaaS company, that's pretty normal. Um, net expansion is another uh, another metric that we value these companies by. And what that means is for a given period, for a year, for example, a the net expansion is how much the revenue of that cohort of customers changed from year one to year two. And in the case of, of Sentinel-1, that's 125%. That means that net of churn they're adding 25% to their existing customers' billings each year in this case. CrowdStrike is super similar. They're about 120%. With, and for these two companies, the data networks are growing in general just by devices and endpoints. So they have a naturally expanding base of which to operate from, kind of similar to... Um, kind of similar to uh, Snowflake, which we've talked about in the past. And then two more factors I'll hit on real quick, and then we'll send it back to Hunt for, for thoughts. Sales and marketing payback period. Uh, Sentinel-1's payback period on sales and marketing is 20 months. CrowdStrikes is a little better at 16 months. Um, and then finally, there's a something in the industry we call the rule of 40, which is the last 12 months growth rate plus the last 12 months free cash flow margin. And that essentially tries to give us a number of which to compare companies from. Um, in the case of Sentinel-1, the last 12 months growth rate was 108%. That's revenue growth rate. Free cash flow margin, however, was negative 86%, giving it a 22% number for the rule of 40, meaning that is low relative to uh, to the average, which actually is just around 40. CrowdStrike, on the other hand, has a rule of 40 of 107%. They had a fantastic year last year at a 74% revenue growth rate, plus their free cash flow margin as a percentage of revenue is 34%. So I'll, I'll pause there, send it back to Hunt, and we can uh, dig into any of those further. I think, I, think, um, I think what we want to do with these two businesses is uh, go through them in more detail next week. And the reason is that that uh, I haven't had a chance to 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 uh, uh, go through 10Q's perspectives and whatnot. Uh, I will get that done over the weekend. Uh, but the reason I think we should focus on these two businesses, I hate the valuations. I hate 30 times revenue. I hate 50 times revenue. But if we go through our whole economy, 
there are very few things that I think we can count on uh, as, uh, as, as reliably uh, on growing is uh, cyber threats. Um, it, it is, um, we had one of our businesses, uh, you know, obviously Colonial Pipeline, that, that got a lot of publicity, but we had one of our businesses have a similar thing happen to them. Um, we, uh, it's incredible how, uh, and I'm sure some of, some, some of the people on the phone have some experience with this, but we, in this business, we had insurance to cover this. When you go to your insurance carrier, you turn over everything, all the decisions you make to the insurance carrier. The insurance carrier uh, had, uh, on at least a thousand prior uh, uh, times, uh, individual events, dealt with the group that had hacked our systems and gotten into our systems, very much as Mike described. I mean, they've been in for 30, 40 days undetected and then started to basically do a few things and then ask for $5 million of ransom. So when you get asked for ransom, you go to the insurance carrier. The insurance carrier immediately recognized who the group was and said, oh, we're in regular contact with them every day. Um, and, and, of course, they want to get paid in Bitcoin, uh, very similar to Colonial. Uh, what proceeded then was, first of all, advice on how to manage our, our system better uh, so that uh, this wouldn't happen again. Um, fortunately, we were able to keep, continue to operate much of the way Colonial was by going back to old-fashioned kind of systems. In other words, just you know, uh, abandon our our uh, our uh, our our uh, all our work process uh, software and whatnot. Uh, kind of reboot it uh, in time. Uh, we came through it all right. Uh, the eventual uh, uh, ransom. I guess was paid. I mean, I'm just a board member, but I think I, I think it was a fraction of the original ask of five million dollars Bitcoin. Um, but it was it's like a it doesn't appear to be the case that no matter how careful you are, it doesn't appear to be the case that you can be immune from this kind of activity with ransoms asked and um, and. You know, here our insurance carrier, which wasn't a household name or anything, had with this individual group a thousand prior interactions. So, I mean, this is happening across every business, everywhere in the world. And I don't see that it is going to slow down anytime soon. So, uh, while I hate the valuations, I think because it's such a dominant trend as we as, as, as Mike said, digitize things. I think we just have to have a closer look at these two companies. And with that, I, uh, just final comment from Mike. I, I don't think Mike will disagree with, with, uh, having a closer look at these two businesses. Absolutely. We may actually expand the pie a little bit because these two are very similar in their approach and their products aren't super different. 
Um, they're both they're both using very similar approaches to solve the same problem and both have very high customer satisfaction ratings. There are others out there, so maybe we'll add one or two as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, let's think it through that way. Right? We'll, for the next bit of time, we'll try to find two cyber security businesses a week and, and try to size them up. And uh, uh, just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's a bad investment. If we will try to work towards finding finding find the best one or two to own. And with that, we're over time. Please, everyone, stay healthy and be well. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.